Can you do me a favor and please stand for the reading of God's Word? One of my new favorite traditions is for us to stand and honor this together. Uh, in case you do not know how we do this, I will read the passage. My um, call then will be, this is the word of the Lord, and then your response will be, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. We are finally, we have arrived, people. <laughs> I am thankful for that. Okay, so I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 7. It's going to be verses 13 through 23. So it's a little bit of a passage. It'll be on the screen, though. Uh, you can follow along in your Bible if you would like. And it says this. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious, ferocious, Wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that come, that, uh, sorry, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. We are in uh, and nearing actually the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We are in a series in Matthew, which is going to go for a very long time. I'm just warning you, but it is coming in waves. And this wave um, for the last few weeks, actually almost nine weeks, we have been in the Sermon on the Mount. And I have absolutely loved it. Um, it has been so forming. I mean, this is one of the greatest sermons ever preached. I think it's the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, and so, yeah, and of course, because it's Jesus, so it, it most likely is. Um, not my sermon, just to be clear. Not this sermon is the greatest sermon ever preached. <laughs> Jesus' sermon. I just thought I'd be clear there. Um, but it's been really forming, and I'm really thankful for it. So I would encourage you as we get into it to let it shape your heart. Let it shape the way you think, the way you live, the way you respond. In particular today, there's going to be some challenging passages, some challenging portions of this passage, but I promise you it's really, really good news. So let's get into it. So one of the most memorable seasons in my life involved a season where I spent a number of days and nights exploring Mount Rainier National Park. Who's been there? Anybody? Okay, so a few of you. Okay. Um, at one point in our lives, Thea and I lived in Western Washington. It was a period of two years. And among the fun memories and stories that we have from there are these days that we spent hiking and exploring this beautiful, beautiful park. And so it's no hyperbole when I say it is one of the most beautiful and one of the most expansive places on earth. If you've been there, you know this. And when you sit at the foot of Mount Rainier and you look upon its immense size, 
you are quickly reminded of your smallness, right? Like you stare at the mountain, you're close to it. It is giant. And when you stand at the top of Mount Rainier and you look around, you feel the vastness of God's creation. The park is truly incredible. Now, one of the few activities that I was able to take part in was hiking different portions of what is called the Wonderland Trail. And it's a system of trails, a network of trails um, that surround the mountain. So if you do the whole thing, you actually do it all the way around. It's approximately 93 miles. I've only done portions. It was truly an adventure though. And here's one of the things that I find so interesting about the park and particularly the trails. Um, the trail or the park entrance where some of the trails begin is only an hour and a half from downtown Tacoma. It's only an hour and a half from downtown Tacoma. So at 5 a.m. you can be driving on I-5 in one of the busiest, most annoying sections of freeway <laughs> in the United States. And then by 6.30 a.m., you can be on a hiking trail where you may not see another person the entire day. And for some of you, that sounds like a gift, doesn't it? <laughs> Both freeway systems and trail systems are impressive. But they're impressive for distinct reasons. If you've ever driven um, by the North-South Freeway that's under construction here in Spokane, then you know that there is a ton of work, a ton of uh, labor and planning and supplies that go into this incredible process. And anything that takes three decades to build is impressive, right? <laughs> I mean, if you've lived in Spokane, you know that. But the trail system, the Wonderland Trail specifically, is also incredible. It's distinct in its beauty, its exclusivity, its demand on your physical ability. Things about both of these items, the freeway system and the trail system, make them special and they are distinct. They're both impressive, but for distinct reasons. So what makes a good freeway system then? If we're just gonna evaluate this really quickly, I find this to be helpful. First of all, a good freeway system is one that you can drive on. It's easily accessible. It's got good traffic flow. Uh, it can facilitate a lot of people at the same time. And the overall ease with which a person can access and utilize and exit the freeway system and move along its pathway is of primary importance. Well, you contrast that with a good trail system. What makes a good trail system a good trail system is that it's not easily accessible. Am I right? For those of you who hike, you're like, yeah, save the best ones for those of us who want to work hard. You go there to get away from the noise. For some, it's the demand on their physical body that makes the system so great. I know people love to hike for exercise, and some people like to push themselves to higher and higher extremes. And for others, it's just the mindfulness that it takes to hike a good trail system. It includes preparation of gear, food, route planning, pacing, all of those things. And so in many ways, the trail system or the trail way, if you will, is the opposite of the freeway in the sense that it's for a very specific and select group of people who choose to delight in its journey. The freeway and the trailway are similar in purpose, but they're distinct in design and destination. 
And today's passage, if you recall the first section of the passage that we read, um, has a very similar comparison. In the beginning of our passage today, Jesus starts the sermon's conclusion, and he does so in a particular way by painting the picture of two specific pathways. I'm going to reread the first two verses so that you know. It says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So he says that there's two pathways, and they're available to everyone. One is broad, like a freeway. Many utilize it, and it leads to destruction. The other is narrow, like a wilderness trail system. Only a few utilize it, and it's the, it's the trail, it's the pathway that leads to life. But Jesus, of course, is not condemning the use of freeway systems. He's simply painting a picture, and the picture contains three different analogies that illustrate what a person's life would look like, depending on which pathway to decide to follow. So I wanna just take a few moments and I wanna remind us of what we've learned so far in the Sermon on the Mount so that you can understand why Jesus is concluding his sermon with the analogy of the two pathways. So Jesus began this sermon um, back in chapter five with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes, if you were here for that, you know, are a list of these personal traits that a person adopts as they move along the pathway to human flourishing. And then Jesus follows that up with the salt and the light teaching, highlighting the promise that God makes to humanity that we are his representations. We are like salt to the earth and light to the world. And then the next section of the sermon begins the larger body of the sermon. And this is a teaching around a very important theme in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is greater righteousness in relationship to the world, our greater righteousness. Then Jesus starts this portion of teaching by um, talking about fulfilling the law. If you remember that, there were six different things that Jesus teaches on that he talks about avoiding. Things like divorce and uh, murder and abandoning oaths, just different things like that. He says, do not do these things, not because they are the way that you earn your salvation, but rather because they are the way that you thrive in this world. And he contrasts that with righteousness that he's advocating for, a righteousness of the heart. And then he uses um, examples of what things we should do to get closer to those things. If you remember, there's prayer, generosity, and fasting are the three examples that he uses. And these examples are all meant to point us to the same idea, that Jesus is primarily concerned with the righteousness of our heart. Far more than he's concerned with religious activity, he's concerned with the righteousness of our heart. So just like the behaviors we are meant to avoid, these behaviors help us understand God's design for getting to that place where then he can then shape our heart into greater righteousness into this world so that we may thrive. It's for his glory and our benefit. So then Jesus moves from there into a passage about money. Uh, He talks about possessions. He talks about stuff and our relationship to those things and how our relationship to those things impacts our heart. And Jesus has this punctuating remark. Um, He says, you cannot serve both God and money. 
Do you remember that? He said, you cannot. He didn't say you should not. He didn't say it was an option. He said, it's just not possible. You're going to serve one of two masters, either God or money. But Jesus, with all of his wisdom and all of his gentleness, he encourages us with this reminder. Our Father in heaven, God, knows exactly what we need, and he will provide us with everything we need to do the things that he set in front of us. So we are not to serve money. Rather, we are to serve him, but we can trust that he will give us what we need. And then from there, he moves into judgment. So he goes from money to judgment. I mean, Jesus is just hitting the hard topics. He talks about how biblical judgment comes in two primary ways, condemnation and discernment. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he says, do not judge, for you too will be judged. He's warning us away from condemning others, from judging in a way that leads to their own demise, to their own destruction. Instead, he invites us into discernment. In the rare case where we get to weigh in on someone else's life, they invite our input or they're asking for our wisdom, we get to help them discern. And when we do, we are to do so with great care, with gentleness and with love. And we're meant to do so to build people up, not tear them down. Then last week, we looked at the final section of the main body of teaching, where Jesus invites us to ask, seek, and knock. And these are all illustrations around prayer, and they are specifically meant to point us towards requesting things that are for the righteousness of his kingdom. He says, be on alert. Ask for the things that lead to the kingdom of God advancing and the light of God taking out the darkness that's in this world. And he finishes that section with this very simple yet profound idea. If you were here last week, we wrestled with it a little bit. But in Matthew 7, 12, it says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I know, that is very exciting, Grace. I agree. He says, when you're not sure how to proceed with a particular decision in your life, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. If you're not sure how to handle the situation, just treat them how you wish you would be treated by them. And so that leads us for, or to rather, our topic for today. And the very next line is the beginning of Jesus's conclusion for this sermon. And it's this analogy of two pathways. And here again, we encounter the genius of Jesus. After we have just covered um, the entire body of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, okay, I've taught you all of these things, and here's the reality. You have one of two pathways. Which one are you going to follow? He says the first one is like a wide gate. It's easy to get to. It has very little resistance, and there are a lot of people on this road. Now, I know you're very smart people, right? Yeah, you're all very smart, right? You can actually kind of start to see, even before I went through all of the word picture of the freeway and the pathway and the wilderness trail, right? You could see that Jesus is definitely leading us to the conclusion that there's one that's good and one that's bad, right? So rather than forming a list of things that you might find on this pathway, I mean, the list is inexhaustible, in my opinion, of things that you probably should avoid. I just want to sum it up with this. The broad pathway can be summed up with this big idea. It is anything, it has anything that is contrary to Jesus' way of living, to his teachings, 
and to how he commands us to live. Anything that's contrary to those things is the path that's going to lead to destruction. And the problem with being on that pathway or being on that road, the broad one is, as we know, it leads to destruction. And so when your life is in contradiction to the commands of Jesus or the practices of Jesus or the teachings of Jesus, you are moving towards destruction. You might not be there yet, but when you're on that pathway, you're moving towards destruction. Now, Jesus contrasts that and offers us a different pathway. He says that this is a narrow gate. It's a narrow path. You will not find it by accident. And once you do, you'll probably be met with resistance. But this is the pathway that leads to life. This is the pathway that you want to be on. Now, again, I know you're very smart. So you already understand that Jesus is saying the way on this path is to organize your life around his teachings, around his commandments, around his way of living. Okay, so let's, let's say you've decided to live your life according to Jesus's commands, which I hope you have, or said another way, to live as a disciple of Jesus. How do you know then that you're doing the right things? Right? That's a good question, is it not? Like, if Jesus is saying that there's two pathways and one leads to destruction and one leads to life, and you want to be on the one that leads to life, like, how are you supposed to live your life? And we know that it's, again, kind of leading us to these ideas of centering our life around Jesus' teachings, around his commands. But I want to make sure I get it really right. You know? Like, I don't know about you, but I'm the type of person that I get so annoyed with myself if I'm doing something wrongly. Anybody else out there? You're just like, you're trying something and you just can't get it right. I don't know what it is, a little bit of the perfectionist in me, but I just will say this. Incompetence is one of my greatest insecurities. I, I can fail at something that I've given my best effort, but if I have no idea what I'm doing, that bothers me like crazy. So because of that, when I take something on, I know I'm just opening up my heart to you guys. When I take something on, this is what I do. I study about it. I practice it. I find the people who I think I have access to that have the best chance of helping me do it better. When I started lifting weights regularly, I learned very quickly that doing a lift properly versus improperly can be a very fine line. If you lift, you know, technique can be a very fine line. And so one of the things that you can do to help yourself with that is have a great coach, right? Have somebody who knows what they're doing, who can spot the flaws in your technique and help them do it. But they can't be there all of the time, right? Unless your coach is your spouse, maybe, then they can be there. So what's another helpful measure then to determine if you're performing the exercise correctly or incorrectly? One of the tells is that you will, if you are doing it correctly, see an increase in strength. And if you're doing it improperly, you will see an increase in injury. Again, if you're doing the exercise properly, you will get stronger. You will see fruit. And if you're doing it improperly, the fruit of your life will be injury, icing, right? Advil, like, you know, like you'll get there. Like you'll understand, okay, I'm not doing this properly. So one of the measures to understand correct practice is the fruit that it produces over time. And Jesus is using that exact analogy 
to talk about and show us what your life will look like if you're on the correct pathway. So he follows the two pathways analogy up with this. Verses 15 through 20 in chapter 7 says this. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Yikes. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. So Jesus is using two more analogies here. He says, first of all, watch out for false prophets. These are the people whose testimonies do not match the posture of their heart. That's essentially what he's getting at. These people are like inviting sweet, cute little sheep on the outside. And on the inside, they're like ferocious wolves. In case you've ever encountered a wolf, I never have. I never want to. They are not cuddly, (laughs) despite what pictures (laughs) might make you think. He says, you will recognize them. You will be able to discern whether they are sheep or wolves by the fruit in their life. And then he has a second analogy. He says, good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. So we have this analogy now of a nice tree. You've probably seen at least a million trees in your life. You've seen some good ones and some bad ones. You know the difference. Well, Jesus is making that analogy. And Jesus is actually doing something else here. He's showing his knowledge of the Old Testament. So not only is he making a helpful analogy, but he's calling the people who would know better back to the Psalms. Now, the Psalms were one of the most widely known pieces of writings in Jewish history. Up until this point, they only had a few things that were recorded, right? This was back in the day, before the New Testament even existed. They just had some pieces, some documentation, and the Psalms were widely known. And this is what Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 says. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners Take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So again, the good tree bears good fruit, but the wicked are headed to destruction. So how do we become like the good tree bearing good fruit? Jesus says by growing healthy roots in good soil next to a good source of water. That's what he's saying in in his passage, and that's what the psalmist is saying in that psalm. And there's actually really great poetic imagery that the psalmist uses here, and we don't have time to unpack all of it, but just know that water in the Bible is often, if not consistently, a reference to the Holy Spirit. So the psalmist is saying that our life, if we root down next into this good soil, Jesus is 
teachings and next to a healthy source of water, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, we root ourselves into those things that we can actually become the tree that's bearing good fruit. So Jesus is saying, know my teachings, practice my commands, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will become like the good tree that bears good fruit. Now, you may have noticed that these two analogies are odd ones for Jesus to lump together. Are they not? Uh, a wolf, right, in sheep's clothing, and then a tree and fruit. Like, they don't really go together that much, except for this. Both of these word pictures suggest that discerning good fruit from bad fruit in the life of someone does not happen quickly but rather it becomes evident over a long period of time. Jesus is warning us that people can pretend to be something they're not for an amount of time. But over a long period of time, the condition of their heart will be revealed and it will impact the fruit of their life. Eventually, our disguises, and we all have them, Myself, definitely. We all have these disguises and they fall apart. And the reality of who we are becomes evident to those who truly know us. And I just want to say this as a side note. When this happens to a disciple of Jesus, it is evidence of God's grace. When your masks, when your disguises, when the hidden sin in your life becomes revealed, it's actually the goodness of God's grace. When sin is brought into the light, it might hurt in the moment. In fact, it will hurt in the moment. But the long-term impact is for our best interest. And when the people of God, when the church, when we respond well, in a way where we're not condemning, but we're discerning and helping lift those people up and build them into the right person and habits and pathways that they're meant to go on, that is one of the best expressions of love and graciousness and goodness in the world. And that's the kind of church I want to be. That's the kind of person I want to be. Jesus doubles down on this idea with the final section in today's teaching. He says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now this section is indeed a stark warning, is it not? But it's not a condemning one. It may sound like it on the surface, but when you understand what Jesus has done in the rest of the sermon and what he's trying to get at, you'll understand how gracious and how important this is. Jesus says that there will be people who act in the right way and they act perfect in regards to religious activity, but they don't practice the main thing. Okay, what is the main thing? It says, only the one who will do or does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven will enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so this is where we can draw on the work that we've been doing over the last nine weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Last week's section included a very very important idea. Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus makes a similar remark in Matthew 22. I'm going to read it to you. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40 says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The entirety of the law, the entirety of the prophets, meaning all of the Old Testament, which by the way was given to the people to show them the will of the Father. God graciously gave them the commandments, the Mosaic law, all of the prophets and the warnings and the encouragements to help them understand how to do the will of the Father. Well, all of that, Jesus is saying, can be summed up into those two commandments. Love God and love others. And we know that Jesus came, as he said earlier in the sermon, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Meaning that everything Jesus is and everything Jesus says and everything that Jesus does is an example of how we are to love God and love others. Therefore, people who follow Jesus, who are interested in doing the will of the Father, as Jesus says here, will be the people who bear good fruit because their life will be rooted near good streams. Jesus is using what a storyteller calls a good callback to the central theme of the sermon, and this is very important. Righteous behavior can only flow from a righteous heart. The primary theme of the sermon is Jesus saying, I want your heart. I am not concerned with your behavior whether you're wrong or right, whether you're just avoiding bad things or trying to do good things for people's approval, what I want is your heart because if I have your heart, then I have you. And the things that flow from you will be like the good fruit. This is all over the New Testament as well, these encouragements. I'm gonna read to you the entirety of 1 Corinthians 13, and it's one of the most quoted scriptures. If you've ever been to a wedding, I know you've heard at least portions of it. It's talking about love, but I think that it's important for us to see a picture of how the New Testament reinforces these ideas, that it's not behavioral-induced righteousness, but it's a righteousness of the heart that produces the type of love that Jesus wants to drive into us and draw out of us. So I'm gonna read this. You can follow along in your screen, 1 Corinthians 13. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have the faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body, to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails, but, there are pro- but where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. And where there is knowledge, it will pass away, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So first we have Jesus, and of course now Paul, helping us understand this essential principle. Good fruit can only come from a righteous heart, which is only possible through Jesus. There is no amount of effort that you can put into the primary work of a righteous heart. Instead, we yield ourselves, our own desires, our own drive, our own will, our own plans, our own success, if you will. We yield that to what Jesus says. And we root ourselves down in good teaching and we plant our roots next to good water, the Holy Spirit, so that we can be with Jesus, so that we can be like Jesus, so that we can do as Jesus does. Following Jesus, being his disciple, that is the narrow pathway. That is the pathway that leads to life. And our discipleship is and always will be an active process where we practice the commands of Jesus. So I thought it would be helpful for us to be reminded of how we might practice these things. How do we know what to practice? I'm just going to give you three that I think are essential. You need to know the word of God. You need to be able to look upon Jesus' teachings and understand what he's saying. Study the Bible. Internalize the Bible. Know it. Let it shape you. The second thing is to pray. And I love to say it this way. Pray what you've got and pray it often. These are not magnificent prayers necessarily. I will often say unuttered prayers where I just feel like, oh, my heart is aching for this person or Oh, my heart is overjoyed for this person. I don't have words for this, but God, thank you. Maybe it's a request. Maybe it's gratitude. Whatever it is, pray what you've got and pray it often. And then the third thing is to be generous. Be a generous person. Be generous with your resources. Be generous with your talents. Be generous with your time, just as Jesus was. If you begin with those three things and you master those three things, you're on a good start. 
And when you're not, not sure about a decision or you have this thing that's weighing you down because you have to make a decision and it's hard or you have, a, um, have a, the consequence you have to wade through because of a decision made and you're not sure what to do next, whatever that may be in your life, I would love to help you run it through the filters that I run it through. First of all, how do I seek the kingdom of God in this situation? If you remember back to Jesus' instructions about worry, he says, seek first the kingdom of God, and then the second thing is to seek his righteousness, and then these things will be added into your life. So how do I seek God's kingdom? How do I seek his righteousness? And then the third one, Jesus' final remark from last week, how do I do unto others what I would like for them to do to me in this situation? You see, Jesus is actually helping us. He's saying there's two pathways, and he's already given us a lot of clarity on what the pathway to life looks like. And it's loving God and loving others. It's actually pretty simple in idea and incredibly complex to execute, right? Yeah, no, you can't flip that person off when they cut you off, okay? I don't know, I understand like how much you want to, but you just can't, like you just, that's not, that's the pathway to destruction, right? Treat others how you wanna be treated. Does that person deserve to be yelled at? Maybe, but should you? Probably not, right? Unless you're warning them to get out of the way of a moving car like I try to do if someone's ever in the way. Thankfully, I haven't yet come across that situation. Jesus is saying, I want your heart. I want your heart. The righteous actions will flow from there. And I think one of the best things to remember along this way is to enjoy the journey. I love that Jesus uses the analogy of the narrow pathway, and for some reason, I keep coming back to this trail system, because in my mind, that was a really enjoyable moment, but whatever the narrow pathway looks like in your mind, that's fine. I would just encourage you, enjoy the journey. If you've ever been hiking, then you know that the worst thing you can do is stare at the trail the whole time, right? You're not enjoying anything around you. You're not enjoying the people that are with you. You're not enjoying the beauty of God's creation. We're just trying to get to the destination. Well, if that's the case, just drive there, right? But no, you're hiking because you want to enjoy the journey. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, hey, your salvation in me is secure. I'm trying to help you live the best life now. Right? I'm trying to help you live a life of righteousness here on earth so that you can thrive. Your salvation is secure the moment you give your life to Jesus, but the journey along the way is meant to be enjoyed too. So enjoy the journey. The narrow pathway is full of delight. And my prayer for us in just a moment, the man can come up, in just a moment we're gonna pray and do communion, but my prayer is this, as I studied this all week and just reflected on this passage I want to be the kind of person that is represented in 1 Corinthians 13. I want to be a person who is kind and patient and humble and full of gratitude, full of honor, joy, generosity, a person who's gracious, who loves people, and I want that for you too.
And I know you want it for yourself. So Jesus is saying, follow me. Love God and love others. You have two pathways, one that leads to destruction and one that leads to life. And the one that leads to life involves primarily following Jesus. So just a moment, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna take communion. But I just wanna invite you, if you need prayer, we actually have, our prayer team is gonna be over against the wall. Mike and Jennifer are gonna be against the wall. If you have something that is hard or sad or difficult, or you just need discernment on and you need other people lifting you up in prayer, please go see them. They will definitely pray with you. And if you're just sitting here in this moment, you're thinking, well, I don't really wanna pray with them, that's okay, but I know I need some work. I know I need some decision-making. I need to get on the right pathway. I just invite you to pray for that too. I think I gave you a few simple tools. Read your Bible, pray, get around other people who know what they're doing and have the life that you want and find out how they got there. But start with prayer. We have a gracious, loving, wonderful God who wants to give you the pathway that leads to life, who wants to get you off the pathway who leads, that leads to destruction. And then, of course, as we move into this Christmas season, this Advent season, as you reflect on the things that might be difficult from past memories or things that might be wonderful from past memories, again, just enjoy the moment. Let God work in that pain. As we read earlier during the Advent reading, I want to read this little passage to you again that was part of that reading. It says, hopelessness beckons the miracle. This week's Advent reading was all about hope. And the thing about hopelessness is that Jesus is the solution, that he brings hope, that the appearing, that the Advent, the arrival of Jesus was actually the signal to hope that we needed the most. It says, touching our longings honestly and allowing ourselves to feel them is the true beginning of hope. It necessitates it. In the midst of our greatest need arises the first in-breaking light of the incredible news that Christ is soon arriving. That really is good news. So I'm going to pray. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm gonna invite you to receive the communion elements. And if you would like to go get prayer with Mike or Jennifer or both of them, they would be happy to do that. But my prayer for us today is that we would recognize any behavior that's contrary to Jesus's teachings, to his commands, to his way of life, not because we need to be religious in our activity, but because it is the pathway to life. And the other options are pathways to destruction. And we don't wanna do that. So God, first we come to you and we thank you so much for this sermon, God, that Jesus gave us that we can wrestle with and that you're working in our hearts and working in our minds in ways that we didn't even foresee coming, God, that you're doing the heavy lifting. God, may this, may this moment be a kickstart for some people where they just get right back on to the right path, the pathway to life. And for others who are already on that pathway, that they would savor the journey, that they would hug their loved ones harder, that they would sit in patience in conversation longer, that they would not snap at the person who's taking up their time, but rather God, enjoy the moment. 
Because God, we have hope. May us, may, may we, may all of us here be the beacons of hope that you've called us to be as we represent you to this world. So God, I pray that you would continue to work that into our lives. Heal what needs to be healed. Restore what needs to be restored. Encourage what needs to be encouraged. May we have faith. May we have the drive to go after the things you're calling us to, Father God. And God, as we get ready to receive these communion elements, these tangible reminders of your grace in our lives, I pray that we do that in remembrance of you as, you as you instructed us to do, that every time we partake of these, that we would think about the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the love that you bestowed on our lives. And that when we taste the juice and eat the cracker, that those physical reminders as we do so would be an experience unlike any other. We thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen. So feel free to receive the communion elements and then join us in song.